Coming up on the Scott Thompson Show podcast, Pfizer finally gets full approval. An Afghanistan update. Will it be the roaring 20s once our economy bounces back from COVID-19? It's all coming up. Today on the Scott Thompson Show on 900 CHML. He's not here. He's not here. Go ahead, read it. Producer Will Erskine here. It looks like Kurt's outside fighting with Joe Crow for a spot in the birdbath trying to beat the heat. Well, that's the Scott Thompson Show for you. Here's your host, Scott Thompson. You stay out in that birdbath, young man. You don't come in. You don't be bringing that birdbath residue in here. Can you believe it? Uh, good afternoon. It is 12-11. It is 900 CHML. I'm Scott Thompson. Willers, come back at the station. Keep it the Scott Thompson home show between the pipes. All right. Uh, COVID-19 numbers uh, ticking their way up again. Uh, but as most officials have said, what we really have to be conscious of is the numbers in the, hos- in the hospitals uh, and those that are unvaccinated, that who continues to be the majority of the people that are becoming uh, infected. Let's bring in Dr. Uh, Timothy Sly, epidemiologist, professor at the School of Population and Public Health, Ryerson University, and with us now. Uh, Doctor, thank you for the time. I hope you're doing well. Oh, yes, Scott. Thank you. So let's talk about the hospitals and where we are. Uh, sometimes we can get a little sidetracked with the numbers uh, in the new cases as uh, obviously uh, in a vaccinated situation, it's a lot different than it was certainly during the first uh, couple of waves. So uh, give us a little bit of update. How are the hospitals holding out so far so good with the, this uptake we are seeing in new cases? You're right. Last time we spoke, uh, the numbers had gone up for, for cases and infections, but we hadn't seen really a rise in the hospitals. That's going up now. I've seen the, the curve is going up across the country and also Ontario as well. Not Nowhere near as much as it was last summer, although the number of infections is approximately where we were, I'd say, about the second week of August, roughly now. So everything's going up. We in Canada can, are probably not going to experience anything like what they're experiencing as a fourth wave in parts of the United States, for example. Florida is just astronomical. The, the numbers there are worse than they were even on the third wave, uh, way out of sight, mainly because of the, uh, the uh, reluctance of, of, for universal vaccination down there. Uh, so we're doing pretty well, but uh, we, can't take, uh, we can't take the guard uh, down or off or, or whatever at the moment. We've got to keep caution. Uh, obviously, we're hearing that the majority of those people that are becoming infected now are those that uh, aren't fully vaccinated or uh, have not received their vaccination or, or just the first dose, not completely vaccinated. Um, is Are you concerned about the percentage of the population that is not vaccinated and the dent uh, or, or the impact they could have on the healthcare system? Absolutely. You put it very well. Uh, yeah, this thing is uh, hunting out there for the unvaccinated uh, it, it, it's, it's, on a, it, it's on a mission. Uh, Peter, you, Dr. Uni uh, has uh, sort of done a calculation that said that the people who are not vaccinated at the moment stand roughly a, uh, about a 90% chance of becoming infected, all, our, all other things being equal. Uh, the rest of us, if we've been vaccinated, we may or may not know we've been infected a second time. If it is a, another infection, it's going to be fairly mild. We can still pass it on to others, maybe even to unvaccinated people uh, or to children and people who cannot, who would like to be vaccinated but cannot. Remember, we, we can't lump all the unvaccinated into one big basket. 
there's people there who really yep. need the, our protection, and there's those people who uh, steadfastly hang on to uh, private, uh, you know, rights and privileges and so on. So uh, you are still concerned that the percentage of people who are not vaccinated and therefore could possibly become sick and hospitalized, is is that enough to cripple our, our, our ICUs or put us in a predicament that we were before? Well, that's a really good question. And so far, I, my fingers are crossed. I hope we're not in that position. I do know of certain local areas where I'm not, I don't think in, in Ontario is necessarily, but elsewhere, where they have reached that point where they're saying, look, we're into this critical business again, even worse than it was in the third wave. Uh, I hope that doesn't happen here. Uh, but, I, but I know that, for example, every batch of new patients that come into a, an operating room and need a special ICU attention, that's some, that's some surgeries that are going to have to be canceled for other people who, are, who are, have a right to get their uh, you know, examinations done and my, my surgery done and so on. So that pushes the whole thing back a little bit. It's, it's you know, a zero, it's a, a, zero, a non-zero sum game again. Things fall off the table like dominoes. Uh, who is getting COVID-19 now? Obviously, we're hearing the majority of those that are unvaccinated, but we still are hearing of some who have been fully vaccinated who are getting uh, COVID-19. D- does that mean they're they're just testing positive, or does it mean that they're actually becoming ill? A breakthrough infection is one where, of course, this person who's been fully vaccinated plus at least 14 days after the second shot, so they've built up their optimal uh, antibody levels, and then they get an infection. It can just be an infection. It could just be showing positive on a virus test. It doesn't mean to say you're actually ill, but that's defined as a, a breakthrough infection, and that's happening at all age groups, but it's certainly, ha- you remember way in the way in the beginning, uh, more than a year ago, it was really only the senior citizens that were falling foul of this yeah. thing, and they began to go down down, 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 down. Just this morning, I was looking at the figures. Now, the 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 most uh, highest, the, the age group with the highest uh, isolations now in this sort of the 20 to 39 group, uh, that group. And of course, the people 12 to uh, 20 are also uh, becoming in, uh, some infections in there as well. And they're not serious, but they are in there. So we've got to watch out for this whole the whole spectrum of the population. How concerned are you of vaccinated people, uh, I guess, carrying the virus uh, and testing positive, but being asymptomatic, so perhaps don't even know they're ill? Yeah, that was one of the strange things with this entire uh, pathogen at the very beginning. Nobody was expecting somewhere between 40 to 70 percent of the virus-positive people would be asymptomatic, no symptoms or signs. This, is, this has been true from the very beginning. Total shocker. This is why it rapidly escaped containment, and we had to put in sort of mitigation, you know, masks and hand washing and so on to try and control it. But what's happening now, I think, is because so many of us have been vaccinated and so many infections are, are going to appear, I think, without symptoms, that asymptomatic rate will increase. So this is the, this is the stealth pathogen in our midst. Right, it's always been there, but now that we we may actually be producing more virus lurking from person to person, unseen. So, what's the solution to that? Don't let your guard down. Keep the masks going. 
even in a group of people where uh, the majority have been vaccinated, I wear a mask when I'm uh, in, a, in a shopping mall or in a lineup or go, mm-hmm. going to the post office or whatever. Uh, and I probably will for the foreseeable future. It's, it's a comfort, mind you. I'm one of the uh, ancient, old, crispy, crusty, nasty people. <laughs> but uh, even so, I think we, we can't let a guard down. That's the thing. Asymptomatic rate is probably increasing as we speak. Uh, some more information from Pfizer. Uh, the drug has now been given full approval. Can you explain what that means? Uh, I guess up until now it was for emergency pro- uh, approval. What it now means once it's been granted full approval, what that means for anyone? Yeah, the, the, big, the big news in the States, because the FDA has just announced that it's now fully satisfied with it and it's, it's going ahead. Of course, it, 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 there has been no reason to suspect that there's anything other than a permanent approval. It was brought in the very beginning because the only information we had was following phase three trials, which are on about thirty to 40,000 people, and that's when it was released on an emergency basis. But since then, you've got what some experts are calling phase four, which is really the whole population. And the evidence from that has shown that this thing is, uh, this vaccine is, is just remarkable in the way that it is uh, performed and protected. Nobody would have thought. When, when you and I first spoke about a year ago, I would never have assumed that we would have this range of vaccines that do such a great job in such a short period of time. It had never been seen in medical history before. And here we have it, and we haven't seen any real problems with it. Obviously, um, many concerned about heading back to school um, and and what that means specifically because 12 and under 12, rather, cannot be vaccinated yet. Any more info on that, on when this could possibly happen? Could we see approval, say, by Christmas time? Well, you'll see that the vaccination committees of several countries have, have sort of edged across that a little bit and saying if you're, if you're not quite 12, but you're going to be 12 before the end of the right. year. So we, we get a, a few more percentage in there. I think it's just a matter of time, but I think because of the caution is good, uh, the caution is good in the sense that these are precious people in society, and we don't want to take risks with them. Uh, because we don't have a full-blown results of a, a phase four trial. And so they're hanging on for that result so that before we say, okay, go ahead with, uh, with uh, 12 and under. Uh, there are some parts of the world that have actually tried that, and they haven't got any problems with it, but I think it's good to hold on. But meanwhile, as you say, we've got to focus on the health of kids as they go back to school. We want them to go back to school. They really need to. So we've got to take all the precautions in getting them back to school. So open windows and good ventilation. And, and maintaining that kind of atmosphere, that culture, if you like, of, of hand-washing, masking particularly, and uh, cohorting, another thing as well. So if you do get an infection, you don't spread it around the whole school, only among your, your group or your class or your cohort. Are you expecting, uh, you know, I guess obviously we're going to expect more cases in young people simply because, uh, like anything, anytime they kept moving the demographic down, it pushed it farther and farther down. So obviously, we're because they're not vaccinated, um, we're assuming that we could see an increase. Are we going to see more kids sick this year than last year? Or, or is it, again, the fact that we have so many vaccinated, even though they're not, uh, you know, that will obviously keep the risk down? Well, of course, if you're talking about being sick, kids are under the, uh, uh, the, the protection of not really having that immediate, you know, fulminant, 
obvious illness anywhere near as much as yeah. adults are. They can, but the more problem they suffer from a or will suffer from a uh, a multi-system uh, uh, immune response problem that that causes difficulties later on. Mm. We don't want that to happen. We don't want their learning ability to be changed or them to develop strange symptoms with you know breathing or joints and so on later on. A lot of these diseases like that. SARS one, if you may remember, was a couple of years later after the, everybody was all cleared up and gone away. People began to suffer from long-term SARS one uh, symptoms. It happened with polio, if you remember, decades after polio, it came back to haunt people who who had a mild infection and they began to suffer again. So we don't want this to happen especially with young kids. And so we've got to watch out for them. So we've got to protect them, even though they may not actually know they've been infected or even uh, show symptoms. We've got to still protect them, I think. Dr. Timothy Sly with us, epidemiologist, professor, school population and public health, Ryerson University. Tim, as always, thank you so much for the time. Be well. Thank you, Scott. Bye-bye. Let's bring in Dr. Rodney Rohde, professor, chair, clinical laboratory science program, College of Health Professions, Texas State University. Uh, Pfizer has now been fully approved by the Food Food and Drug Administration. What does that mean? And let's get a uh, general update on what's going on south of the border. Dr. Rodney Rohde is with us now. Doctor, thanks for the time. I hope you're doing well. Hello, Scott. I hope you're doing well as well, and it's good to get this approval news today. So let's explain that. Uh, from what we understand, uh, initially this is approved as an emergency sort of thing at the beginning of this pandemic, and now it has been fully approved. What's the difference between one and the other? Right. So the emergency youth authorization is a designation that FDA, the FDA can use during public health emergencies as obviously we understand that the pandemic has been. And so they start that at that time. It actually started on December 11th, 2020, at least um, for the United States. I believe that's for the world. And as that moves forward and as the FDA moves forward with their um, full investigation, which includes a ton of analysis, thousands of pages of data. They have to visit the vaccine manufacturing sites uh, and, and, and just numerous other things that they look at. And then when they finalize that approval, it becomes approved as it was today. So uh, obviously, at the beginning of this pandemic, we saw all of uh, I think we saw all of the manufacturers, all of the laboratories, all uh, science across the world come together and 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 break down the silos and and get this uh, move this drug or or these drugs forward as quickly as possible. Hence the approval. Now that uh, they've gone back and crossed all the T's and dotted the I's, does this make people feel? more comfortable, doctor. Does this help hesitancy at all, do you think? I I hope so, Scott. I mean, that's definitely one of the hopes that we, you know, believe that will occur, especially with those individuals that might have been on the fence and worried about the full approval. And that's what we hope. Um, We will see, I guess, in the coming months, if we have a, uh, an uptick in those who are receiving the vaccine and of course, with Delta kind of raging right now, we've seen that number uptick anyway, probably due to fear. But hopefully this will be a decision not out of fear, but out of confidence that the data has been looked at, the efficacy has been studied, the safety has been looked at, and that the public starts to uh, fully fully accept this as a, a typical vaccine with the, all the 
all the privileges and safety that we're used to seeing. And one one other quick comment, Scott, that I've been mentioning to individuals is that these vaccines, especially the mRNA vaccines, have really been looked at for the past 20 years. So this started back in 02 with the original SARS. And while the vaccines weren't out and approved yet, they were being developed and the different technology was being looked at. So they are not brand new, as many people would have you believe. They are actually decades in study. And of course, with the uh, Operation Warp Speed and moving it into clinical trials, it's probably been studied more than any vaccine in history. Hmm. Are we just to expect that Moderna and the others will follow suit here? Well, that's the expectation, right? Um, Hopefully that will occur. I can't speak to that right at this moment, but my professional kind of hunch is that Moderna will follow because if you remember, that particular vaccine followed Pfizer by several weeks to a month uh, when Mm -hmm. it was EUA approved. And then J&J was two or three months after that. So I would assume that they're looking at all three at the same time and continually not only looking at the three in totality, but also for different age levels. So they're probably also looking for for those ages that we're still hoping to get to, which is down in that K through 11 years of age. That was my next question, Rodney. What about uh, 12 and under? Uh, that seems to be the concern up here as well as we get into September and school starts. Uh, high school kids, not so much because a lot of them have been fully vaccinated, but those uh, uh, under 12 a concern. Any idea or have you heard any rumblings of when that will get uh, approval? Haven't haven't really heard any rumblings or kind of uh, insight on that, but I have no doubt they're looking at different cohorts. What I would imagine they're doing is looking at, for instance, maybe, oh, I'm just, I'm just spitballing here, maybe the age of of 9 to 11 right. or something like that, and they're looking at another cohort from 5 to 8 or something like that. They tend to like to cohort it so that they can look at tighter uh, age groups as they do that. And I'm sure they've been doing that with, Uh, clinical trial volunteers from the beginning. So is there any reason to expect, because obviously kids get vaccinated at very young uh, ages, depending on on what it is. Um, What is the issue with vaccination and kids? What are are they looking for? And and is this just a case, Rodney, of, you know, we started obviously with the older people because that's who who was passing away. That's who was dying way back when. And then we've slowly vaccinated from the oldest to the youngest. And now we're they're the only ones left. Or is there anything different how you approach vaccines when you're giving them to kids? I mean, obviously less dosage, that sort of thing. But what are they looking for? Yeah, you you basically just hit it all on the head. So it's certainly kind of a combination of all things with the SARS-CoV-2 pandemic hammering the 65 and older and immunocompromised. That's obviously the first cohorts they were looking at for EUA safety. And then they've started working down. But there is um, some unique things they look at with, for instance, infants up through five years old, childhood immunizations. Uh, They tend to look at dosage. You know, it's very different for a 25-pound child versus a 180-pound adult. Mm -hmm. So there's dosing. There's different types of immune responses because when you get down into into that infant age group, they may kind of have an 
an immune system that's not going to be as strong and responsive as, say, a 16-year-old or a 25-year-old. So they're, they're looking at those types of things. And then, you know, ultimately they want to be sure that they're including even every type of safety thing they want to when you start looking at, you know, younger and younger individuals that may not have the same type of fully developed um, biological systems as an adult. Dr. Rodney Rohde with us from Texas State University. Doctor, give us a bit of an update on where the U.S. is. We've talked over the, the course of this pandemic uh, over the last year and a half, I guess. Um, and, and we remember uh, when the United States took off and, and, and the vaccines were, were just, it seemed, flying out the door and into uh, those arms. And, and then it, 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 there was hesitation. It sort of waned a little bit. Uh, talk about where you are and what your concerns are uh, because of the fast start and then the slow response afterwards with that variant. Right. What an up and down six months it's been, right? Really 18 months. But but certainly since the vaccines came out, we had that initial rush and we fortunately had all of the at-risk elderly folks got it, nursing homes, health care first responders, we didn't really have a lot of pushback, and we've done really well there. What we've seen since that kind of tailed off in April, May, we're now looking at, you know, the country as a whole is a little over 50% vaccinated. Some places are higher, as we've talked about, some are lower, and we, we continue to fight that kind of hesitancy around whatever that reason is if it wasn't approved by the FDA, if it was something about I don't trust the government, I don't trust the vaccine safety, whatever it was, we're continually working on that. And I think what concerns us is that we were still kind of in that realm, but between the Delta variant and now with this approval, we have seen our vaccine uh, vaccinations rather go up to about a million a day in some areas. Mm-hmm. I know in Texas we hit, we've been hitting close to a hundred thousand a day over the last few days. So I think we're improving, but it'll be interesting. I think to get back together and talk in a couple three weeks, if not sooner, to kind of see what vaccine acceptance is doing in, in the coming month or so. So you are starting to see re, uh, rates increase. The message is getting out about the variant, and you got to finish it off. Is that message getting out, Doctor? Yes, it is getting out. And, and again, it's kind of hard to dif- discern between is it totally out of the Delta variant or have we been coming through with a better message? Because I do know that the communication needs to continue to be thought of and looked at from a science communication standpoint so that we start talking about what I just mentioned, that the history of the research on this vaccine is not yesterday. It's actually a decade or two now. So trying to get people to understand that it is not something that is just a fly-by-night, you know, in the last year due to the pandemic. It's actually something we've been studying for a couple of decades how does uh, if America is in a fourth wave now and and how does that compare to uh, one through three how uh, because 50 percent have been vaccinated which is great 
So um, how concerned are you about another wave with those unvaccinated? We're seeing up here it's become uh, the phrase is it's it's now a virus for the unvaccinated. Um, How does it compare to the first few waves? Yeah, it's a great question. I think, you know, and you might know that I've written a couple of articles about this within the conversation that it is become a kind of dual pandemic in the sense that we've kind of controlled the pandemic and those who are vaccinated, even though there's been some breakthrough, those individuals are not having severe COVID overall and they're not ending up on ventilators or the morgue. Um, And then we have those who have not been vaccinated and we are seeing, you know, hospitalizations really out of control in certain states, including in Texas and Louisiana and Florida and, and elsewhere around the U.S. So hospitalizations and and healthcare burnout uh, with professionals is a big concern, in my opinion. And we have to figure out how to get to those unvaccinated individuals as we move forward. The good news overall, Scott, is that so far we're not seeing the same types of death rates, mortality that we saw back in January when you might remember the U.S. was pushing four or 5,000 a day at times. Mm-hmm. We have had some days this week in the thousand, and like near a thousand. So that's concerning. Uh, and hopefully that number will start falling with monoclonal therapy and those that have not been vaccinated as well as we get those vaccination rates up for the the kiddos and and young adults, because we are seeing, I think I heard this morning from the latest day that the the groups of 30-year-olds are kind of those that seem to be a little higher than others. So there is some concern that this Delta variant is manifesting a little bit differently, but thank goodness we have the most at risk and the immunocompromised protected right now. Are you surprised that the borders are still closed, Rodney? Uh, a little bit. You know, it's, it's I, I, I think I was talking with your colleague, Bill Kelly, about this a couple of weeks ago about it's interesting to me because it, it's really kind of ironic, right? So within the United States, we have states that we might have oh, 20 or 30 per 100,000 uh, that are or showing mortality or, or morbidity, and you'll have another state that's double that. And yet we're we're kind of moving within the United States, uh, but then when you go outside of the country, you might have places that have lower uh, problems, uh, whether it's Canada or somewhere else, and we're prohibited <laughs> from those. Yeah, so yeah. it's it's just a conundrum, and I think it just gets down to the different governmental decisions around what we're going to do. Some places, some parts around the world are still really strict and locked down, and I'm not sure that's good for keeping things moving with businesses and other healthcare issues. So I think there's got to be a happy medium where we really look at testing and perhaps vaccination status as we move forward so that we can allow some movement and some uh, travel between countries. How concerned are how concerned are you, Rodney, with the fall and the rising variant and your vaccine rates and such, and obviously kids going back to school? What do you think the fall looks like for the U.S.? Yeah, so today was our first day at school at Texas State University, and my wife, who is a pre-K teacher, starts next week. Mm-hmm. So there is concern in 
those teachers and staff and parents who are sending children to school, especially K through 12, 11, 12, that cannot be vaccinated. So that is the the biggest concern right now. And I am concerned that we may have states that have full-on uh, kiddos headed back to school that are not required to wear masks and mm. and even the teachers and staff. So I think that's what we're going to be watching very closely. Um, I'm very fortunate in my college because most of our students and faculty understand that to work in healthcare, you mask up and you get vaccinated, but that's not the world we live in. And um, we're going to have to keep looking at that messaging and hopefully people will take that on personal responsibility for that to happen if it's not being required in certain school districts. Dr. Rodney Rohde with us, professor and chair, clinical laboratory science program at the College of Health Professions, Texas State University. Doctor, as always, thanks so much for the time. Be well. Thank you so much, Scott. Be safe and we'll talk to you soon. You're listening to the Scott Thompson Show podcast on 900 CHML. All right, 14 days have passed since the Taliban took Kabul. Uh, many have said uh, they did not think it would happen as quickly as it has. And, of course, uh, we certainly know the images and, and what has happened uh, since that time. Here's a clip of Defense Minister Sajan on where we are and how Canada is helping. When Canadian planes land in Kabul, Canadian Forces members board as many passengers as they can then the plane must depart within its scheduled window. On Canadian flights, loads have been at the maximum amount possible within the safety and capability parameters. The security situation on the ground is all changing rapidly, sometimes literally by the hour. But one thing I can assure you, I can assure you that they are doing everything in their power and, and taking every opportunity. But I can't get into any more details at the risk of compromising uh, their great work. All right, let's bring in Nipa Banerjee, Senior Fellow, Faculty of Social Sciences, School of International Development and Global Studies with the University of Ottawa and is with us now. Nipa, thank you for the time. I hope you're doing well. Yes, I am. I'm very busy, but doing okay. I can imagine. Uh, give us a bit of an update on what you know as far as uh, what Canada has done to help evacuate it. I, I read earlier this morning uh, up to 1,500 have been evacuated so far uh, from Canada or by Canada, rather. How many planes have been have been have okay. been able to land there, and how many people have we been able to get out? Who are the people we've been able to get okay. out? Okay, and that's what I will focus on. Who are the people? I know for sure people who have come in, and that is maybe almost about 10 days ago. Um, these were uh, all the Canadians at the embassy. The evacuation of the Canadian embassy was the priority, so all the people in the Canadian embassy. Then um, uh, the Canadian embassy who are Canadian, and then there were local staff employed at the Canadian embassy uh, and their families. Um, uh, then they also had some people who had some Afghans who worked with the army. I don't know how many of those, but um, uh, all these people have had landed about 10 days ago. They stayed at a hotel for 14 days for quarantine purposes. And um, so that's the way they are arranging. Not really that many people. I don't know the exact number, you know, unless they give out the number. But one of the problems is the process appears very slow 
because a lot of the people who had worked for Canadian government finance projects and programs, they went to the website and got the forms to apply. And and, uh, what it said that if they apply with that form, they will soon hear from them what the next step would be. Well, they have not heard. Um, uh, Maybe those people who have worked with the army, um, uh, yes, they had. But the civilians who worked in Canadian program, Canadian funded programs, development programs mainly, they haven't heard. So they are still waiting and they did not make any unjudicious move to run to the airport or anything. So they are tucked in um, in the in the city. So, uh, you know, this is one thing I hear. And these people are quite frustrated and they are panic stricken. Actually, they don't know what to do because they are what they are concerned about is that uh, the Taliban is hunting them out and those out who had worked for um, uh, for foreigners and uh, different foreign alliances and different foreign countries, including Canada. Um, that's one issue. And then second, what they are, uh, they, what, what I ask them is what they see. Just now I see that Sajjan had pointed out that the security situation is changing sharply. Well, I talk to them every day and I talk to them this morning now, what they say that the situ- while the airport situation is um, is difficult and it's you know it's mayhem and confusion and chaos there and also dangerous, but the city streets are improving, um, uh, and they said even in the beginning that um, the you know the they could get get out. I mean, they are getting out to do their everyday shopping. You know, the the offices are closed, although the Taliban had asked them to come back. You know, everybody hasn't gone back to work yet fully, but they are getting out for for their everyday shopping. It's not pleasure shopping, but everyday shopping, and they are not being stopped. What I heard an interesting thing in the beginning, particularly, that the Taliban, Taliban army was stopping some people who are supposed to be Taliban too. And um, what they were trying to do with these people, that they are not the rogue elements that are going against Taliban leaders' instructions to not, to not um, sort of uh, commit violence, uh, but they were around um, and they were being stopped by the, by the army at places. So um, I don't know... I mean, like, you know, the news is authentic because these are educated people who gave me the uh, gave me the information. And what they're saying, things are improving a bit, bit by bit every day, uh, but not at the airport. And and they mentioned that they don't think that people should be going to the airport without uh, without any prospects of their Mm -hmm. destination, where they are going and whether or not they have sponsorship for those. Where are they going to land, et cetera? So this is what I hear um, mainly. But there is panic because these people work for the Canadian government um, and they think that they might be hunted out.
Your thoughts on the speed in which this happened across Afghanistan and and how quickly Kabul fell uh, into the hands of Taliban. Many thought that it wouldn't happen this fast. Could we not see this coming? Uh, Yes, I think we could. Well, people who had, I mean, who would have continued to look at what was going on, which I do, um, uh, well, I don't expect to uh, uh, to have people read every every bit of news, but in general, people were saying, you know, it, there were problems. Um, it is like you know, it was. Everybody knows, first of all, that um, uh, you know, withdrawal was would happen. It would be inevitable because no country can be under foreign, um, uh, you know, army control for a very long time. And so um, it it had to happen. It was inevitable. However, um, you know, uh, everybody knew also that um, there were problems um, in the in the army and also in the development programming and the civil service with corruption, etc. See, for the army in particular, you know, there were direct indicators that um, insurgency was strengthening um, uh, because, you know, it, there, there is a journal called Long War Journal um, uh, published in USA. And every quarter when their maps would come out and I would look, you know, there was uh, the incursions into, ta- into government territory by the Taliban was increasing. And, you know, it has come to a time now, if you look at the colors, if red was for Taliban control, you will find, you know, the huge swaths of land have been occupied by them. So if people, I'm sure that, you know, the administrations of uh, different international countries uh, were, um, were quite aware of. Uh, Nipa Banerjee with us, Ph.D. Senior Fellow, Faculty of Social Sciences, School of International Development and Global Studies at the University of Ottawa, talking about the situation in Afghanistan as Canada tries to get its allies out and citizens uh, as well. All right, extremist groups are attempt, uh, attempting to infiltrate law enforcement and the military in Canada uh, the United States and other nations. Uh, this is uh, on the global web, web website. Uh, extremist groups are actively recruiting past and present members of the military and police, according to a declassified Canadian intelligence, uh, intelligence report obtained by Global News. The report cited 17 examples in Canada, the United States, UK, Germany, New Zealand, which, quote, illustrate the interests, or sorry, intersections and relationships between ideologically motivated violent extremism and uniformed personnel. Six of the cases involved members of the Canadian military or the reserves. To talk more about all of this, Phil Gursky is with us, President of Borealis Threat and Risk Consulting, Director of University of Ottawa Security Program, and former analyst at CSIS, and is with us now. Phil, thanks for the time. Hope you're doing well. I'm doing well, Scott. How are you? I'm doing good, thanks. So I guess, Phil, uh, periodically from time to time we hear about this. Is it more concerning now? Hmm, wow, what a good question. So I'm going to preface my remarks, Scott, by saying that when I worked for CSIS, my focus was on jihadis, so Islamist extremists. And I retired in 2015, and it's not that we weren't looking at right-wing extremism as a phenomenon, but we were, you know, all, man, all hands on deck in terms of the jihadis because of the plots we had in Canada, plus the Canadians are joining ISIS, Al-Qaeda, etc. It's a problem, Scott, that, that never really went away. It's been around forever. 
How serious is it? Is a really good question. And I would just caution your listeners that recruiting somebody is not the same thing as planning something violent in Canada. I mean, it's not a good thing, but it isn't sort of like a one, one, you know, one way street where you recruit somebody and then 10 months later or 10 days later or whatever, you have a planned attack here in Canada. So it's, it's not a good answer to your question, but it's a difficult question to answer the best of time. So how motivated would they be? Is this just a club of people who like hate and, and, and chatting about this sort of thing? or And, and I guess does that go on uh, uh, quite a bit that we just don't really pay attention to? At what point do... Uh, where's the balance there? At what point does this become, you know, uh, you know, some sort of club as opposed to a actual threat? Yeah, I know. Last time you went online, Scott, there's yeah, a lot of yeah. people that say a lot of stupid things online that couldn't mm-hmm. organize a, a piss up in a bar. Um, yeah. And I think a large percentage of that are those people. Even when I worked on the jihadi files, lots of these guys never had any real intent because they were incompetent. Um, it's never a good thing to be in these forums. It's never a good thing to be sharing these ideas. But as I said earlier, I don't think they want to make a one-one relationship. From the thesis perspective, that's what, that's what their job is, to identify these individuals, to look at them and see which ones warrant further attention, i.e. like an investigation. And then when there's really good information to suggest they may be planning something criminal in nature, there are mechanisms where thesis can share with the RCMP, and the RCMP can start building a criminal case against it, because thesis doesn't collect evidence, it collects intelligence. I think that um, in my talks with former colleagues, they are paying more attention to this problem than we have perhaps in the, in the recent past. Uh, I think they're doing the best that they can, and I think they've probably got a good handle on the nature of the problem. Again, I don't have a crystal ball. I can't predict how many are going to go on and actually do something violent. My guess is very, very few based on historical analogies. So how do they recruit? How do they? What sort of net do they put out? How do they catch these people? Well, I mean, you know, how many forums are out there, right? Whether it's yeah. Twitter or, or LinkedIn or Facebook or 4chan or 8chan, how many chans are out there now? There's all these different venues where you can go and you can read material, you can watch videos, you can upload stuff, you can make comments on stuff, you can engage in chat rooms. And I, and I think the problem from a law enforcement security intelligence perspective, uh, Scott, it, it, it's like, um, you know, it's like whack-a-mole because you can say, okay, this forum is, Using, the, using their space to do X, Y, or Z, we're worried about we're going to shut it down or put some kind of a, you know, a ring around it. They just go somewhere else. And, and so you're, really, you're constantly chasing your tail in this regard. But again, the, the point I want to make, and it's really important for your listeners, is that we're not on the verge, I don't think we're on the verge of some major upsurge in actual acts of violence. <clears throat> These people like to vent. They like to share ideas. And, and, and you do have recruiters. You, know, they, they, you do have the brains of the outfit. And they, you know, can they have the charismatic personalities? They know what to say, what to post, what to draw people in. Those are the guys are that are, they worry about are the guys that actually know what they're talking about and can identify people who might just be a little more, you know, off the deep end, who might be encouraged to actually do something violent. How concerned are organizations, whether it's law enforcement or military, that these sorts of groups are trying to sidetrack their members? I think there's a, a, a good level of concern. I mean, obviously, you know, whether you work for CSIS or law enforcement, first of all, you don't want any of your members to engage in illegal activity. You know, yeah. a headline, you know, Toronto police or Ottawa police officers caught doing something which is legal, that's never a good headline. You never want that to happen in the first place. Secondly, you know, if it's something really violent, like possibly violent extremism, i.e. terrorism, that's an even worse story for your organization. So, you know, there are mechanisms in place. Um, all large organizations have internal security. Where, you know, where you have to submit what you're doing on a regular basis so they can make sure you're not doing anything stupid. I think they probably have a good handle on it. 
And I would give them credit for doing what they need to do to make sure that people that work for them don't go off and join these groups and, in the worst-case scenario, do something which ends up, you know, in possibly hurting or, or killing Canadians. Uh, how much of this concern is a result of the U.S. Uh, capital uh, invasion when, you know, it appeared that uh, they weren't just demonstrators, they were a bit more organized uh, than what uh, people thought originally? How much does that day and what happened on Capitol Hill that day, uh, how much of that is affecting these these conversations? Let me draw an analogy, Scott. Um, the Taliban just took over in Afghanistan in the past two weeks. And we've seen a, an incredible rise in support on Islamist extremist sites for the Taliban and for Islamist extremism in general. They see themselves as having a, um, won a great victory of the United States and its allies. The same thing on January 6th. Call it what you will. I don't think it was an act of terrorism personally. I thought it was more like a, a riot or a frat party gone wrong. And, you know, they were seen as having made their point. They breached the perimeter of the Capitol. They sat there. They took selfies. They destroyed things and everything. And whenever you get an event of that nature that can be spun as a victory, you're definitely going to get people. Everyone loves a winner, right? And so if you can, if you can portray this as, you know, we, we beat the man and we, and we were able to do this, you're definitely going to attract people. So I wouldn't be surprised. I mean, again, it's not my specialty, but I wouldn't be surprised that, in fact, there are people that became a little more interested in these types of ideas in the aftermath of January the 6th. Are you surprised at their ability to mobilize, that it did get out of hand as it would, not to sidetrack what happened in Washington, but, you, you know, obviously that has some concern. Well, definitely. And, you know, January the 6th was a direct, <clears throat> excuse me, direct result of the former president. He egged them on. He talked about, you know, democracy being undermined. He talked about an election being stolen. And his message over all four years of his presidency were quite consistent. So it wasn't as if this was a one-time shot. They've been getting the same types of messages, the same type of exhortation for a long, long time. So, again, it's a, it's a matter of sort of a critical mass of things. And sometimes people do react to events that happen. They say, OK, this is finally our chance. This is when we have to you know, actually get, you know, put our, our butts in motion and actually do something. Mm-hmm. It's nothing like victory, Scott, <laughs> to, to gather more people to your side. And so, I, I, you know, again, I, I don't know what's going to happen here in Canada. Uh, I'm confident that the, that the services and, and the force have the... Um, people in place to monitor this accurately and, and closely. Whether we're going to see any action down the road is anyone's guess, but I, I'm not panicking. I mean, I'm not batting down the hatches just yet because, I mean, first of all, we see very little of this in Canada writ large anyway, and I see no reason to believe it's going to get demonstrably worse in the immediate future. Phil, can't let you go without asking you your thoughts on what has transpired in Afghanistan over the last uh, couple of weeks. Uh, many, many are, many are uh, talking about how uh, you know they they were surprised at the speed of which uh, the Taliban uh, took over. Your thoughts, and and are you surprised we didn't see this coming, or did we see this oh, coming? No, I mean, I, again, Scott, I, I don't believe in, in predictions, but. I've been mon- since I retired from CSIS in, in, in May of 2015. I still monitor. I tweet about terrorism on a daily basis, and I can tell you, I tweet about terrorist attacks on Afghanistan on a daily basis over the past six and a half years. Most of which carried over the Taliban, some by an Islamic State affiliate called Islamic State in Khorasan. So no, I'm not surprised at the Taliban strength. I'm not surprised that the Afghan army couldn't hold their own. Uh, this was this was written in the stars, as far as I'm concerned. Where I'll push back a little bit is that this is some kind of catastrophic American foreign policy disaster. It was a disaster when they went in. And, you know, I wrote a book back in 2019 saying then to the war on terrorism. The more we see terrorism as a war to be fought by soldiers in the tens of thousands, the longer we're going to be at this. This is not a war. This is a a counterterrorism 
struggles. It should be your security services, your special forces, your law enforcement doing it. And we knew the Americans were going to get it eventually, and the Afghans simply didn't have the organizational ability and the, and, and the training to, to beat back the Taliban. And, and bottom line, too, Scott, is a lot of people, they may not like the Taliban's violence, but they like the Taliban's fundamentalism. So they already yeah. had a, a, a yeah. dedicated group of people in the country who thought that their version of Islam was actually the right one, which facilitated the, the, the rapidity with which they took over. It just seems odd for some that don't know much about the area that if you spend 20 years fortifying someone's army and training them, uh, you'd think they'd be able to last longer than a week or two. Um, you know, and now we have Taliban driving around in, in, you know, U.S. uh, equipment and such. Was this lack of leadership or as in you're saying, well, you know what? They're not that bad anyway. It's kind of all the above, right? We saw it in Vietnam in you know, the early 70s. I remember the American yeah. withdrawal from, from the Vietnam in the 70s. We saw it with the Russian withdrawal, or sorry, Soviet withdrawal from Afghanistan in the 80s. We've seen it with the American basically withdrawal from Iraq in the, in the 2010s after they went in 2003. You know, nobody likes an occupying force. No matter how good you are and no matter how careful you are to prevent civilian casualties and give assistance to the locals, you're still, a, you're still an outsider, still an yeah. unwanted party. So why are we surprised every time when these outside forces leave that things fall apart rather rapidly? It's not a solution. Um, uh, uh, you know, some great things were done in Afghanistan. Some Canadians served in Afghanistan, both in intelligence and law enforcement and the military, and did a great job. But you can't substitute for the locals. And I don't know why we haven't learned that over centuries of trying to do this. So mm. bottom line, the Taliban's in power. Um, they're going to be walk, open the door to some terrorists because we did that in the, in the 90s as well. I don't see any difference. What happens next? I guess we'll have to wait and see. We'll have to talk more in your program about it. So you're not convinced that Taliban 2.0 is better than the first installment? You don't buy the charm offensive or what we're no, seeing here? None whatsoever. I, I, you know, I, they say a leopard doesn't change its spots, and the Taliban, are, you know, they may have some minor sort of fringe changes in terms of how they portray themselves, but they are still a fundamentalist, intolerant, hateful, misogynist interpretation of Islam, and... They're in bed with al-Qaeda. They're in bed with other terrorist groups. There's dozens of terrorist groups that have been in Afghanistan for the past 20, 30 years. And they're there with the Taliban's acquiescence and support in some ways. So, no, I don't think this is going to be any change at all. How bad it's going to get, I guess we'll have to wait and see. But I'm not holding my breath anytime soon. Uh, Boris Johnson, British Prime Minister, has uh, called a meeting of the G7, I believe it's tomorrow, to talk about what is going on in Afghanistan. What will that be about? What will they try to do? Wow, what a great question. It'd be a fly on the wall at that meeting, right? Um, I mean, I used to go to G7 meetings when I was in season to talk about counterterrorism, but this is a whole level of, of concern and immediate concern. I don't know. Do they, do they promise to send some special forces back to, but by the end of the American withdrawal, that's kind of what was left, right? We're, we're a handful of American soldiers helping the Afghan army. It didn't work then. So why would you repeat the same error again? I, I think there's also a desire to be seen to be doing something because this is being portrayed in the media as a catastrophic failure. I've heard magazines like The Economist say you know, Biden's going to wear this. I'm thinking, I don't think so. He, a lot more presidents screwed up in Afghanistan before Biden did it. He yeah. screw up. I, I think they want to be seen to be taking some kind of action because they know that the public is looking at them and saying, you abandoned the Afghans at the fate of the Taliban. They're a 13th century misogynist movement. Now what? We can't, we can't just leave them because women, you know, women will be, will be uh, persecuted. Girls won't go to school. Et cetera, et cetera, et cetera. And I think we in the West, we, we always want to be seen to be doing something. And no matter what it is, as long as we're doing something, we can say, well, at least we're trying. Whether it's to make a difference, 
boy, that's a that's a sixty four million dollar question right now. So uh, at this point, just let them be. Uh, let it become another cesspool of, of terrorism and terrorist organizations. And as long as they keep it within their borders, it doesn't bother anybody. We're fine with that. Uh, what raises the next red flag here? I I don't know, Scott. I really don't. I think we're damned if we do and damned if we don't. I've always maintain that if you've got really good intelligence that there is a, an attack being planned or a movement is growing in strength, don't send 100,000 soldiers in. Send, just like they did for, when they got Bin Laden and Abadabad in 2011, Scott, send a special forces team in that's, that's you know, well-trained, locate him, get him, get out. No footprint, no must, no fuss, and you solved at least one of the many problems that you have. I just don't think that we can go back to the days of 2001 where we thought that a massive influx of Western soldiers was going to make a difference. And in the end, as we've seen, it hasn't. So there are other options. There are intelligence options. There are law enforcement options. There are options to maybe work with the Taliban, but I wouldn't get the mortgage on that one. But let's, for, for, for God's sake, let's not think about some massive redeployment to, to, uh, to do this. We, we've just gotten out. Why, why in God's name would we go back in, and, in a, with a massive footprint? Many obviously remember uh, 9-11, and uh, if we take our eye off the ball, that that could happen again. Uh, is, how much of a concern is this to the free world? Look, terrorism didn't, you know, didn't start on 9-11. It didn't end on 9-11. Mm-hmm. Uh, in any given year, there's between fifteen and 20,000 people die in terrorist attacks around the world, and 99% of all those attacks are carried out by Islamist extremist groups, mostly in Africa and mostly in Asia occasionally in the West, Europe, Canada, United States. This phenomenon is not, is not going away. I think the intelligence service and law enforcement uh, are, are in a better place now than they were 20 years ago as we approach the 20th anniversary of 9-11. We've learned a lot, I think, about the ideology. We learned about uh, who the players are, but the players are constantly changing. As we eliminate some, people take their place. I think we're in a better spot now to prevent more acts of terrorism. I mean, we here in Canada have been really good at preventing acts. We haven't had any major attacks in our country, but a couple that have, you know, people have died, and that's, that's terrible. But we haven't had dozens of deaths because of terrorism in this country. So let's say our security and law enforcement are doing a good, a good job. I think we've come a long way since 9-11, and I'm, I'm, I'm confident that we're going to, you know, the services will be in place to, be, to identify the real plots and the real actors before they act. Uh, many talk about the 20 years that was spent. It was it a waste of time, but there has been a generation of women and girls here who have seen their life change. That's now, it, it's a different Afghanistan now than it was 20 years ago. Um, are, are they going to be a pushover? Is this going to be as easy uh, as it was the first time? Or again, I mean, there has been 20 years of education there. Does, does that count? I hope so. I mean, I really feel for those who have been able to go to school, have been able to go to work. Their lives have changed in the past 20 years. We'll have to see to what point the Taliban actually allows that to continue or will it go back to its sort of default position, which is girls don't go to school and women don't go to work. So will a whole other generation be denied that right? I sincerely hope not. I don't know. Um, the ones that have got the opportunity, let's hope that they can work on, on a local level to make a difference as well. But... The bottom line, Scott, is that the Taliban are back in power and they're going to call the shots. And if, if they're true to their word, and if I, sorry, if they're true to their selves, not their word, I don't trust their word, I'm, I'm afraid we're going to see much the same regime as we did in, 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 the, two, in the late 1990s and 2000s, which means a return to the type of misogynist, hateful, intolerant fundamentalism that they're known for. 
Phil Gursky with us, president of Borealis Threat and Risk Consulting, director of the University of Ottawa Security Program and former analyst with CSIS. Phil, as always, thanks so much for the time. Very insightful. Be well. You too, Scott. Thanks for calling. And now the commentary. We are officially in the dog days of the COVID summer of 2021. Yeah, it's certainly been better than last summer, especially for those of us who are fully vaccinated and are feeling at least somewhat less vulnerable this time than last year. Take advantage of this time afforded to you during this summertime, although the recovery is and continues to drag on and be very slow. It won't be very long before some sense of normalcy returns, whatever that's going to look like. It has been such a life-altering pandemic period, it's hard to grasp what the new normal will be. However, one thing it has done is make us appreciate summer and the time and space that we have. So soak up as much of it as you can before we all have to head back indoors. And hopefully by then, we will all be fully vaccinated and the fall will be a new beginning. I'm Scott Thompson. You're listening to the Scott Thompson Show podcast on 900 CHML. All right, here we are. It is uh, officially the dog days of summer, last couple of weeks of August before uh, the kids head back to school. And we are, uh, a lot of us, most of us, the vast majority of us, fully vaccinated or on our way to it. Uh, over 80% still with the first dose, 82% or so. So uh, many wondering what the recovery would look like as we head into the fall. Of course, the, the Delta variant still showing its ugly head and uh, keeping everybody concerned uh, as we try to get the rest of the population uh, vaccinated. But many, ta- uh, many talked about when things finally did get back to whatever the new normal was. Uh, that's going to be like the Roaring Twenties. Is that the case? Let's bring in Ian Lee, Associate Professor, Sprott School of Business, Carleton University. He is with us now. Ian, thanks for the time. Hope you're well. Uh, thank you. Thank you, Scott. Doing very well. Are we bouncing back yet, Ian? Have you? Can you see the indicators? I think we are. I mean, I'm, I'm purely a numbers person. I'm not here to, as you know, I'm not a medical doctor. I'm not here to talk about the, uh, the variant other than, uh, you know, its impact on the economy. Uh, the numbers are very strong. Uh, I know Ms. Friedland, the, the uh, finance minister, has said repeatedly that we're in a pandemic recession, uh, but it's simply her own numbers in the budget speech in April of this year did not simply support that. Uh, it's growing. The unemployment, the, the number of, of jobs lost due to pandemic is almost back at the same, I think we're a quarter of a million short, when, when you consider there's 20 million people employed in Canada, according to StatsCan, a quarter of a million out of 20 million is, is a very small number. Uh, the number of the unemployment rates coming down dramatically. And most importantly, GDP is going up, up, up. And um, so I, I think the economy is, uh, has re- is recovering. I mean, this is no question about it. Uh, to your question, um, and it, it really hinges, I think, the continued strong recovery is dependent on, hinged on, the uh, how we respond to the variant. If it turns out to be particularly infectious or virulent, um, we're all going to run head back to the for the tall grass in our house. <laughs> Starting with me, yeah. by the way. Mm. If I think there's great risk in going outside, well, what are you going to do? Head back to Fortress Castle, called our home, <laughs> our abode. Um, if indeed the we don't yet know, um, but. Um, if it looks like the those who are vaccinated are mostly okay, uh, they're mostly protected, 
then I think we're going to muddle our way through and, and manage it, and we won't engage in a fourth uh, lockdown. Uh, many talked about the Roaring Twenties when it eventually all kicks in. Too early for all of that, or just not accurate? Um, I wouldn't say either. I mean, meaning by that, um, uh, Scott, if you look at the numbers, they did come roaring back. I don't know if they came back roaring as much as they did in the 20s, but they've come back very, very substantially um, already, already. And, um, you know, the economy has been performing very strongly uh, this year for the vast majority. I do want to emphasize that. As the Economist magazine keeps telling us, it's the 90-10 economy. You know, 90% of us are doing very, very well. 10% of us have been flattened and annihilated. Those people, especially in the industries, as we all know, where there's a lot of uh, human contact. You know, bars, restaurants, uh, gymnasium, um, you know, uh, hair salons and so forth. Uh, but the vast majority haven't. So I'm I'm cautiously optimistic. Um, I have confidence in our public health people. I have confidence in our scientists that work all of these extraordinarily uh, educated, clever people that work in laboratories and uh, work on uh, uh, DNA and mRNA and work on viruses and so forth. They know what they're doing uh, far more than I do. I'm not a, a immunologist or a virologist, and the vast majority of us aren't. But I have confidence in these people, um, and they've been working. I know there's been some anti-vaxxers saying this is brand new. I went and did my own research because I'm a researcher, and the mRNA was discovered in 1961 mm-hmm. when I was seven years old. And let me tell you, I'm a long, 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 long way from being seven years old now. So they've been working, and there's been scientists around the world working on the mRNA. I don't mean on the specific vaccine, but they've been. There's just thousands of scientists, highly educated people with PhDs in biochemistry and chemistry and biology working on this. In fact, Bernard Crick won the Nobel Prize for discovering the double helix of the DNA, which is the, the program in our bodies. And that's not a theory. That's a Nobel Prize. And the mRNA is very closely related. So there's, there's just a ton of science. This wasn't something people said, oh, I'm so shocked. People came up with a vaccine in such a short time. Listen, the scientists, thousands of them around the world have been working on the mRNA, which is the foundation of the vaccine, for literally 60, 70 years. Mm. Laboratories around the world, pharmaceutical companies, universities. I mean, there's just people don't realize underneath the hood how many. It's incredible the number of people in biology departments and chemistry departments and pharmaceutical companies and government research labs who have been working on this for literally three quarters of a century. So how I have can... confidence in them. And, um, and I, I know that people are saying it's mutating and, and changing, but our scientists are awfully clever, too. And they can come up with uh, they can it's a game of cat and mouse right now going on and and I'm I'm pretty confident that the um, the cats are going to uh, even though the mice are very fast I think the cats uh, called the scientists they're pretty fast too and they got very sharp claws. Uh, many uh, la- or last week there was chatter of inflation, housing prices, gas prices yeah. uh, have gone up. How concerned are you of that in the next year? I am, I am, and uh, concerned. Um, uh, I'm not suggesting that we're going to return to the 1970s, which I lived through as a banker. I saw the inflation go from 4 to 5 to 6 to 8 to 10 to 12 to 14, and then they started running up the interest rates, and it peaked at 20%. Yeah. And I was yeah. a mortgage manager, 
and it was just horrible times. That's not going to happen again. But what my fear is, Scott, is not that it's going to go to 10 or 20 or something silly. Uh, right now, interest rates, the central bank rate, is almost zero. Mm-hmm. What if the central bank rate goes up to 2 or 3? Everything is priced off the central bank rate. Everything. I mean, mortgage rates, uh, HELOC rates, car loan rates, revolving lines of credit for small business rates. Everything's priced off prime. So if it moves up over that couple of years by two or three points, uh, that's going to hit a lot of people. It's going to whack a lot of people because that's going to come straight out of their discretionary spending if their interest rates go up. And that, that's my, my worry about that, that, uh, that um, if inflation does become embedded, and that's the term that the economists use, is this just temporary and it's going to go back to normal, meaning 1.5 to 2, or is it becoming embedded? Embedded where? In our heads millions of us called consumers and business managers if the managers think that the uh, prices are permanent increases in their costs they're going to increase their own prices and then workers are going to say look the prices keep going up i need a pay raise and so then you get into that inflationary spiral and if people are wondering listening is what's that got to do with interest rates answer everything everything because we know the central banks have known for a very long time, especially since 1980. Yeah. You can kill inflation. All you have to do is put the interest rates up high enough, and you can, you can create a first-rate recession, too, by the way, throw enormous numbers of people out of work, but there is a solution to inflation. It's just that it's extraordinarily painful and costly. And, and the central banks have said, our own central bank doesn't get reported widely, and the central bank of the United States, the Federal Reserve, has said, if we think inflation's becoming embedded, we will increase rates. This is not an opinion. This is not a theory. This is a reality. And so then the only question right now is, is this inflation we're experiencing, is it temporary or is it permanent? And we don't yet know the answer. Ian Lee no with us. We're talking about the future. Ian Lee here, Associate Professor, Sprott School of Business, Carleton University, the economy moving forward as we exit or half-exit a global pandemic. Ian, as always, thanks for the time. Be well. My pleasure, Scott. Thank you. The Scott Thompson Show, weekdays from noon to 3 on 900 CHML. This is the Scott Thompson Podcast, available on Apple Podcast and Google Podcasts or wherever you get yours. And don't forget to subscribe, rate, and review so you don't miss a thing. I'm Scott Thompson, and thanks for listening.